Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 25. Let me read you what Derek Kidner says about this chapter. He says, The death of Abraham is given its setting in the catalog of families that sprang from him. Such is the onward thrust of Genesis. Among these true to pattern, those that were to play little part in the history of salvation make their bow first to leave the chief actors in possession. If I could have said it better myself, I would have. This chapter is about the blessing of God on Abraham's family in general and on the line of Isaac in particular. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan, the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Laumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. We aren't sure, actually, whether Sarah was still alive when Abraham took another wife or took a concubine. It seems likely that she was, so this would be after the birth of Isaac, but before the death of Sarah. So this is probably as good a time as any to discuss polygamy, the practice of having more than one wife. Remember that the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. It is the story of bad guys that need Jesus. So Sometimes what we have in the Bible are stories about bad guys doing bad things, things that are being described, not prescribed, meaning that the Bible tells us what Abraham does, but it doesn't tell us to do what Abraham did. Abraham did lots of things that we shouldn't do, like lying multiple times about his wife being his sister. The Bible records that, but does not commend that. And so it seems with polygamy. There are no commands in the Bible to have more than one wife. God only gives Adam one wife. That is clearly the original pattern. It's only after the fall, when men are moving away from God and each other, that we have polygamy. The first mention of polygamy is in the story of Lamech, that crazy guy who had multiple wives and sang songs about killing other men. So that's clearly not a recommendation. That's a description of our descent into depravity. The Old Testament, on the whole, seems to permit polygamy in that it doesn't outright forbid it, but it also limits it in passages like Deuteronomy 17, 17, where it says, He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And then in the New Testament, we read that elders and pastors must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, 
self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc. 1 Timothy 3.2. So I think it would be fair to say that monogamy was the original pattern. It is the original pattern, uh, regardless of where you are in the, in the canon of Scripture, but it, but it was the original pattern in the garden. It is the commended pattern. And while polygamy was tolerated in the Old Testament, it was frowned upon even then. It was limited even then. And then it becomes outright disqualifying when we come into the New Testament. That is a reasonable summary of what the Bible has to say about polygamy. We jump back into our story at verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. So again, everything we said about Sarah back in chapter 23 can be repeated here in terms of dying in faith. Abraham and Sarah never possessed the land that God promised. They paid for a burial ground in the land as a gesture of faith, believing that one day God would give it to them. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Being buried in the promised land communicated two things, according to the author of Hebrews. First of all, it communicated belief that God would give the land of Canaan to the children of Abraham at some point in the future. Secondly, it communicated a belief that not even death could keep people of faith from inheriting and possessing all that God had promised to give them. As with Sarah, so with Abraham. Verse 11 goes on to say, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Matthew Henry says here, note, the blessing of Abraham did not die with him, but survived to all the children of the promise. So there is a sense in which the promise is inside the line, and it passes here from Abraham to Isaac, from father to son, but not to all his sons, only to the son of promise. Thus, we have a brief interlude to tell us what happened to Ishmael, the son of Abraham, who was not the son of promise. Verse 12 says, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, 
Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages, and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael's family, having made their bow first, to use the phrase of Derek Kidner, the family of Isaac now takes center stage. Verse 19 says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, notice here that Rebekah is barren. Nothing is easy in the life of faith. Just like it was not enough for Sarah to be married to a person of faith, so here it is not enough for Isaac to be the son of a man of faith. I remember hearing once that God has no grandchildren. So it is here. God wants to stir up faith in Isaac, and he does it by withholding children from his wife, Rebecca. That's important for us to see. The Bible says again and again and again that God uses difficulty and affliction to create faith in his chosen people. Job 36, 15, for example, says, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. God uses personal and familial pain and adversity to create and develop faith. You need to know this. God will teach a man to pray by making his wife sick or by withholding children or by frustrating a dream or expectation. Knowing that can save you a lot of time and heartache in the Christian life. Now, Isaac figured it out. He became a man of prayer. Verse 21 says that. And it goes on to say, And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, two things should be noted here. First of all, there are 20 years between Isaac's prayer in verse 21 and God's answer in verse 26. Remember that, right? How does God stir up faith? By difficulty and delay. The other thing we should note here is the primacy of God's decision over ours. Make no mistake, Esau will make choices in this story. Really, really bad choices. Disqualifying choices. But God's choice comes first. Here in chapter 25, verse 23, God says that the older shall serve the younger. Before they had done anything good or bad, God made his choice. The Apostle Paul reflects on this at length. In Romans 9, he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Romans 9, 10 to 12. So Paul tells us what happened and why it happened. He says that God made his choice first, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God did this, Paul says, to teach us that God's choice is always primary and it has nothing to do with our works or merit. This is a difficult doctrine, but it is taught on almost every page of the Bible. The story continues in verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Again, that means that there were 20 years between their first efforts at getting pregnant and when they actually had their babies. That is a long time of praying, waiting, despairing, believing, hoping, and praying again. God knows how to make a believing people who is a teacher like the Lord. These verses also tell us a little bit about the boys themselves. Esau is red and hairy, and Jacob comes out holding Esau's heel. Jacob does not want to be left behind. His name means, may he be at the heel. And because of how he lived the rest of his life, it came to mean deceiver or supplanter. Jacob certainly didn't want to be left behind or left out. He wanted to be at the center of what God was doing. We'll learn more about that in just a little bit. Verse 27 says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Again, and you're probably going to get sick of me saying this, but the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. It's the story of bad guys that need Jesus. This is not a perfect family. Far from it. They make mistakes, and they pay for those mistakes for a very long time. That's why these stories are in the Bible. We get to learn from our forefathers' mistakes and our foremothers' mistakes. It is not good to play favorites with your kids, as Isaac and Rebecca will learn the hard way. Verse 29 says, Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Now here we see that God is not unjust. However difficult it is for us to understand how God's sovereignty 
and our responsibility go together, it cannot be denied that they do. God chose first. There's no doubt of that. But Esau made his choice as well. He did not care about the promises of God. He was not thinking about the future like his grandfather Abraham or his grandmother Sarah. He was a man of the present. He was a man of the earth. The author of Hebrews says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. The two words used to describe Esau in that passage, pornos and bebilos, define Esau as a man of base physical appetites. He's the opposite of a man of faith. He is ruled by his belly and by his immediate wants. That's not what faith is. Faith is about deferring immediate wants and focusing more on the long term. Faith is about deferring the immediate for the eternal, right? Faith is about the ability to put off the immediate in favor of the essential. Faith is about focusing more on the long term, right? Faith is always about believing that it's better in the long haul to trust in God. Faith is about deferring. Faith is about waiting. Faith is about trusting. Faith is about believing in the city whose architect and builder is the Lord. Now, Jacob had it. Esau did not. Esau traded eternity for a bowl of stew. The author of Hebrews says, Afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Too late, he realized that he had chosen poorly. Too late, he realized that he had paid far too high a price to satisfy his carnal appetites. There is a lesson in there for any with eyes to see. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. 
your word is a lamp unto my feet. 